Welcome to NextWorks Innovation Talks. Let our podcast inspire you with inside stories and conversations about innovation. Welcome to the NextWorks Innovation Talks. I'm your host, Laurence van Eeligen, and today I'll be talking to Barry O'Reilly. Barry is a business advisor, entrepreneur, and author working at the intersection of business model innovation, product development, organizational design, and culture transformation. He's the author of Unlearn and co-author of the international bestseller, Lean Enterprise. So, Barry, welcome on the show. Thanks for having me, Lawrence. Uh, really looking forward to our conversation today. Um, so maybe you can start by telling us a bit about your professional journey and passions. And also, could you explain to our listeners why exactly you sold your Facebook stock? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I have a pretty uh, different type of background. My first opportunity to do work is I worked in San Francisco for a startup called CitySearch.com. And it was just at the turn of the 90s. And, you know, our, what we were doing was putting people on the Internet for $50 a month. You know, we'd come around, take photos of their building and they could have a website at the time. And uh, our number one competitor was Zip2. Are you familiar with Zip2? No, no, unfortunately not. No, that was Elon Musk's first company. And um, we were actually going to merge with them, but I always joke, I don't know what happened to Elon, but I'm obviously on your podcast here. (laughs) And, you know, this was sort of a great moment for me to understand the real impact that technology can have, not only in changing how businesses operate, but the scale about how quickly a small idea can have a really big impact. That helped me really figure out that I was had found the right fit for the area that I wanted to work in. And I've had the privilege to work with some amazing companies, you know, share my learnings in the books that I've published. And, and you know, like, why have I sold my Facebook stock? And <laughs> it really has come down to this. I think that Facebook does not represent my values about how I want to interact and use technology in the world. The fact mm-hmm. that they have failed to support removing hate messages from their platforms doesn't align with my values. And mm-hmm. I think one of the things that I have very strong conviction on is representing and living my values, both in terms of the companies I work with. I've turned down many companies that I won't work with, whether it's you know everything from cigarette companies to institutions that I feel are not aligned with my values. And it goes a bit back to this notion of a fit. I think when I have a great collaboration fit, where I find people that are aligned to my values, who are willing to go to the edge of their skills, their capabilities, find their growth areas, and we go there together, you know, great things happen. But when there's a misalignment on values and expectations, or companies, I believe, don't reflect my values, I'm very strong conviction on not supporting them. So I sold all my Facebook stock and I deleted Facebook from my phone in 2016 after their Cambridge Analytica issues. And People told me, if you delete Facebook, nobody will ever speak to you again. You'll never have any <laughs> friends. You know, there's, and there is these societal pressures that force us to stick with the herd. But I think one of the things I've always done is stick to my values. And sometimes that means making decisions that the majority don't want to go with. That's really commendable. But do you think that today enough companies or individual employees think enough about their values? Well, the short answer is probably not. People feel like, what difference can I make? What difference does it make? Someone actually joked with me yesterday when I told them that I left Facebook. They're like, yeah, well, what difference does that make? Mm -hmm. 
And for me, unfortunately, that's actually quite apathetic because sure, one person, you know, changing their behavior, what difference does that make? Well, for me, that actually has a massive difference Mm -hmm. because, you know, it may feel improbable that only one person can change your business or change your culture or change your organization for the better. But if every single one of us changes ourselves just a little, that's how the whole world changes massively. You know, so I think people have a lot more agency than they realize. When a leader role models great new behavior or innovative behavior in their companies, that actually has a ripple effect. People mimic that behavior, they follow it. Mm-hmm. So I think I'd really encourage people that we actually have a lot more agency and influence and power than we realize that we can make choices. And if everybody makes choices that are aligned to the values they believe in, that's what will be reflected in the wider world, especially in the times we're living at the moment. So much of the idea is to force us not to make decisions, to feel helpless, to feel that we can't inflict change. And that allows many of the status um, to remain the same. That's not good enough, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So talking about behavior change, I wanted to talk to you today about the, the concept of unlearning, which is what your latest book is all about. So Maybe let's start with the basics. What is unlearning exactly and why is it as important as learning? My inspiration for writing Unlearn really came from what I frequently found to be a significant inhibitor when helping high-performance individuals get better. It was not their ability to learn new uh, skills or methods. It was actually their inability to unlearn the mindsets, behaviors, and methods that were once effective for them but now limit their success. This is a real challenge for leaders, right? After I wrote Lean Enterprise, I had the chance to travel all over the world and work with executives from British Airways, HSBC, Google, Amazon, these amazing global organizations. And the people that lead these companies are truly exceptional individuals. And, you know, often the challenge and the easy pushback for them is to say, well, why do we need to change? Our businesses are growing. Our markets are growing. All our metrics are are green and growing. Why should we change? I think, you know, one of the really unique things about change is if you don't practice it, you forget how to do it or you get stuck using the same methods that made you successful in the past and hope they'll make you successful in the future. And I think the COVID crisis has just been such an exemplary example where we've had this global shock to the system. You know, many of the ways leaders lead have been disrupted. Their behavior has been disrupted, right? Mm -hmm. So I lead a number of CIO groups in collaboration with Slack. And one of the things I've noticed, and a lot of these CIOs are sharing that the way that they used to have confidence that the teams were going to deliver is they would look people in the eyes, see how teams were collaborating. But all those feedback mechanisms are now gone in a remote world when people are fully distributed. So they've lost a lot of these comfortable behaviors for managing people. And now the behaviors they're starting to do are asking people for updates, constantly asking people for updates, which is actually getting in the way of teams getting work done because they're spending more time reporting what they're going to do rather than focused on what they should be doing. These are like subtle little behaviors that leaders actually think are helping, but they're hindering and they need to be unlearned. So really, that's what I've helped people recognize is these subtle behaviors that they need to adapt when they're not getting the outcomes they're aiming for. But often when I say to people, well, you need to unlearn, a lot of people get quite upset. 
Mm-hmm. You know, they sort of say, well, does my experience not matter anymore? You're saying my knowledge isn't useful and nothing could be further from the truth. I think of unlearning very much like a system. I just say that unlearning is a process of letting go or reframing and moving away from once useful mindsets and acquired behaviors that were effective in the past, but now limit our success. It's just a conscious act of letting go of outdated information and actively engaging and taking in new information to inform your decision-making and action. What I find with great leaders is when they recognize you're teaching them how to get better information to make better decisions or to adapt to new realities, that's really exciting to them. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to play advocate of the devil here, but why do we need to unlearn? Couldn't we just skip that step and just focus on learning new things? This is the thing. Not all the lessons we learn are good ones. Mm -hmm. And also... You can't just keep filling yourself up with more learning. You have to recognize when some lessons no longer work. So in essence, as our knowledge grows simultaneously, other knowledge becomes obsolete as the reality changes. So just like a cup, you can't just keep pouring information into it and it just overflows. You have to recognize what parts to put in and what parts to take away. And that pattern sort of exists everywhere in life. You know, we have products in the world and you've got to constantly innovate the features of your products for it to stay relevant in its market. So if you're not constantly innovating your behavior and your mindset to adapt to the market, that's where you're going to get into trouble. So to me, it seems that the hard part of all of this is possibly to know when you need to unlearn something that used to be of value Could that be maybe even more difficult than the unlearning itself? When do you know, okay, this is no longer working? I have ways to help people diagnose areas where they may need to unlearn. I'll I'll ask you these questions and maybe a few ideas pop into your head and and the listeners maybe uh, themselves too. The way I get people to think about, like, how do I know when I need to unlearn? And the questions I generally ask is, can you think of a situation where you're not achieving the outcomes that you desire? And maybe you're not living up to the expectations that you have for yourself. Maybe there's a situation that you're struggling to resolve Mm -hmm. or you're actually avoiding altogether. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you've tried everything that you can think of and you're still not sort of getting a breakthrough. Does anything pop into your mind? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. That's it. Especially when I ask, you know, leaders like yourself, it's not a case of one thing appearing. It's like five, six, ten. Yeah. Right. And again, these are all signals. So when we're hitting blocks, when we're struggling, when we're not getting the results, that's a signal that our existing behavior is not driving the results that we want. And therefore, we need to adapt our behavior or we need to sort of unlearn Mm -hmm. what we're currently doing and relearn new methods and mindset to try and get past this obstacle to get the outcome we're aiming for. Mm -hmm. But yet the challenge with relearning is often we tend as humans to stick to what feels comfortable, what feels known, and, mm. um, you know, try and do the same things we're doing with just more intensity. You know, our existing behaviors are quite limiting our outcomes. Relearning actually requires getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, like finding the edges of your knowledge, your skills, your capability, and trying to extend them. And that's uncomfortable for people. As you get people to try and explore that space, it's about thinking big about the outcomes you're aiming for, but starting small and feeling safe as you sort of explore this uncertainty or your edges in the pursuit of trying to get the breakthroughs that you're looking for. 
you know, once I teach people this system, really then it becomes virtuous. The more they practice learning how to unlearn, the easier it becomes and they can start to take on bigger and more audacious challenges. I've had the leadership team of International Airlines Group, British Airways, Iberian, Belling, you know, and, and they took um, six of their leadership team out of their company for eight weeks with the goal to try and launch six new products to reinvent their business. You know, when I tell people that I've taken executive teams out of their business for eight weeks, they look at me in shock. They're like, that's not possible. But these are companies who realize that the existing ways they're trying to do innovation are not getting the results they desire. They could have stopped after a day if it wasn't working, but they saw value in that. They saw benefit in that. And that's what encouraged them to keep going. For most organizations, the fear to stay in the status quo, to send people to Harvard and Stanford and get them to sit in a room and be talked at for two days and send them home with a certificate that they're innovators, this isn't going to change behavior. Mm-hmm. It's the deliberate practice of uncomfortable new behaviors to shift your thinking is actually what drives great results. And the leaders going back and coaching other people how to unlearn has been massively beneficial, I think, for the company. So you talked about recognizing the signals. Why do you think that we are so bad at reacting in a proper manner to these signals? Maybe you could explain a bit by using the example of the tennis star. I forgot her name. I'm really not a sports fan. That's okay. Um, Yeah, no, I I understand. No, um, So one of the massive inspirations for me with this book was a lady called Serena Williams. Yes, that's the one. Sorry. It's awful that I didn't remember. Sorry, everybody. (laughs) But I think what really inspired me about Serena's story is she's absolutely exceptional at what she does. And what is sort of non-intuitive is that she's getting better as she gets older. Now, one of the unique things about the average age of tennis players, uh, they all retire at the age of 27. But what was unique about Serena is at the age of sort of 29, she was in Munich and she stepped on a piece of glass and damaged her leg. And um, she went on to play a few games the next day and, and she got to the final of the Grand Slam, which is like the sort of flagship events for tennis. But she lost in the final. Then the subsequent next event or major event, she sort of lost in the fourth round. And most people were starting to sort of write her off. Then at the French Open, she lost in the first round to somebody who was ranked 120th in the world. So people completely wrote her off at this stage. She's 29. She's won a number of Grand Slams at this stage. Um, And then after the event, she went to practice in a court in Paris. And while she was practicing there, um, she was approached by someone who was watching her practice, Patrick Morontrugal. And he sort of gave her some feedback that she found very curious about how she was practicing and hitting the ball. And that feedback sparked her curiosity to sort of practice with him for a week. And then she flew home to Florida as she was returning to take part in Wimbledon, probably the most prestigious of the tennis events. She fired her dad as her coach. Her father had coached her since she was a child. And she started working with Patrick. And what happened basically was amazing. They made some small little tweaks in the way that they prepared, but she actually started to win more. So she had like a 14% improvement in her win ratio. She had a 71% improvement in her Grand Slam success. And even today, she's still getting to the finals of these Grand Slam events and competing and, and hopefully potentially will win another one. She had this constant appetite to keep 
letting go of the things that had made her successful in the past and constantly trying to find new and interesting ways to improve herself. And even though she's almost twice the age of everyone else she's competing against, which is a total anomaly in the sport. And it requires reinvention. It requires challenging yourself about finding new and different ways to improve. But if we're not willing to sort of let go of the things that made us successful 10 years ago, five years ago, we're really going to limit not only our capabilities, but the people that work around us. And I think that's what was like a real inspiration for me when I learned about her story. Mm -hmm. So that's a wonderful story, but I also love the unlearning example of the Roman Empire that you gave in the book. Can you elaborate on that for the listeners and maybe tell us what governments of today could learn from that example? You know, I always think about if anyone's ever thinking of writing a book out there, it's really always hard to find examples of ideas that you're thinking about. But there's two areas that always provide great examples. <laughs> uh, the first one is biology, because Believe me, if it's happened, the world has found a way for it to happen before in biology. So that's always a good hunting ground for stories. <laughs> But the other is history. To your other question about what can we learn from governments today, We learned these lessons before. We seem to repeat the same patterns, but we seem to forget the lessons or unlearn the lessons in some respects. You know, what I found fascinating, again, about the Roman Empire is 2,000 years ago, it was like a seed of a civilization. It was like a startup in seven hills in Central Europe. And it went on to scale itself to incorporate 20% of the world's population and cover 2 million square miles. And for almost 500 years, it was one of the greatest economic centers of the world that we've known. There are many theories about what allowed the Romans to be so successful. And, and when I ask people, they often say, well, roads, aqueducts, you know, their military and so forth. But the thing that was truly unique to the Romans is they had this one innovation. When they fought with uh, successively against different peoples, whenever they found practices that were better than their own, they let go of their existing practices and incorporated the practices of the cultures that they integrated with into their own. In essence, they had built this system of governance that allowed them to both learn lessons from other cultures and incorporate them when they were practices that were better than their own. The interesting part about what actually brought Rome to an end was actually Caesar turned his back on the world. He closed Rome's borders and started to face inwards. And this actually led to the collapse of Rome. And it brought us into the medieval ages, where we had a thousand years of sort of plagues, wars and regression, really only to rise again with the Renaissance, which was probably one of the most creative and inspiring times in human history. You really got to sort of embrace being your renaissance, like learn to unlearn. If we all can embrace a little bit of those principles, I think we'll create a better society for all of us. Yet most of what we see in governments and in the world is exactly the opposite. How should we make this better? Is this something that we should integrate in education? Well, you know, one of the huge inspirations for me about changing culture is uh, Dr. Edgar Stein. And he has this notion of two anxieties. Uh, he talks about learning anxiety and survival anxiety. And there are different ways to try and prompt behavior in people. Now, survival anxiety is often driven more from a sort of fear perspective. I'll say to you, Lawrence, if you don't take some action, your business is going to be disrupted. There's all these companies in the market. They're going to take your margin. 
right? I'm trying to incite this response in you based on more urgency or in some cases fear, mm-hmm. right? So, and that works to a certain point, but after a period of time, it sort of stops working. People will say, well, you keep telling us we're going to be disrupted and our company is still here. So maybe you're not believing me or the fear is so much that it makes you freeze that you're afraid of what should I do? Then the other side is learning anxiety. And this is like, how anxious do we feel about trying new things? And when people are very anxious about trying new things, they won't do anything. They freeze. But if you reduce learning anxiety, if you make it safe for people to constantly try new things, to experiment, to figure out how to try new behaviors, and if they struggle, that's okay because they're getting better. They're building that muscle, right? Reducing learning anxiety is an unending tap of growth. But over-relying on survival anxiety actually causes people to freeze or to tune out. This is why starting small is so important, because starting small makes it safe to fail. It gives us a fast feedback loop, and it allows us to take small, uncomfortable steps. Think big, but start small, and learn fast about what's going to work for you as you sort of explore these new, somewhat uncomfortable behaviors. So you stated earlier that leaders often make the mistake of believing that the strategies and even the character traits that made them successful in the past will continue to make them successful in the future. But what strikes me here is that we so often talk about the fact that leaders need to keep an eye on all the change around them and then adapt to that. But you are really talking about a very different level, I think. You are talking about the how you react to something, and that is a fundamental level of self-reflection on a deeply individual level that is a lot harder to acknowledge and adapt, is it not? It is. I think it's really difficult. Most people don't want to sort of take those challenges on. We're under so much pressure to perform, to have actions, to respond in the moment. We actually don't often have a lot of time to really reflect on what's happening. For many people, you have to be willing and open to adapt to new information that goes against your beliefs or actually embrace counterintuitive strategies that are at odds with what you've always been taught. Some people have to learn how to learn again. One really shining example for me, I had the fortune to work with the executive team of Capital One. And, you know, this is a really high performance, very metrics driven organization. They're Amazon's favorite case study for AWS because they've so embraced technology at their core of their business. Their leadership team invited me to work with them. One of the observations we had is that they were very output focused, right? They'd have their leadership meetings. They would sort of come together. They'd talk about the tasks that needed to be done. Everyone ticked off their tasks. And there was a great feeling of productivity. But when I sort of sat back and challenged them to say, well, you you know, you're trying to drive business agility in your organization. What are the outcomes that will demonstrate you've done that? And they sort of paused for a moment. They're like, well, we're doing all this activity, but we're really not communicating the outcomes clearly. And that provoked a response in their leadership team where, you know, they started to come up with outcomes like, you know, we'd have 50% increase in product innovation. We'd have 30% increase in our customer wallet spend with us. So then when people talk to them about, well, you want to digitally transform, what does that mean? Their leadership team would say, well, that's a 30% increase in our customer spend with us. It's a 50% increase in product innovation. And Ryan Schneider, who's the CEO of the card business at the time, 
it was a real aha moment for him when we did a retrospective. And he shared that insight about being more outcome focused instead of output focused with his team. But he didn't stop there. Then he went and sent an email to 50,000 people in the company to say, I realized that we were very output focused and we need to be more outcome focused. And I also realized that adopting principles of agility are actually very difficult. So me and the leadership team were trying to do it. I know lots of teams out in our company are trying to do it. It's hard. Let's recognize that and let's do our best to try and embrace it. That's the sort of type of leadership that's inspiring for people. It's making yourself vulnerable. It's showing humility and recognizing how you need to change as a leader and how hard it is. And I think that's why these companies really accelerate into the future and ahead is because they don't pretend to have all the answers. They look for asking the right questions and then build systems to find the right answers. They're the kind of leaders that I work best with. And I think that's really goes back to this notion of finding this collaboration fit based on your principles, the values and what really matters. But does that not stand diversity in the way if you're trying to look too much for people that think like you? Well, the reason I talk much more about values is mm -hmm. because understanding of when you face complex situations, like how you're going to respond, being curious. So how curious are you really? Mm -hmm. Like when you get information that's counterintuitive or not aligned with your beliefs, how are you going to respond to that? Are you initially going to say that's wrong? Are you not going to look for it? Are you going to be open to it? And that's the sort of level I'm really trying to get people to think about. It's what I look for in my collaboration partners. And it's funny, like if I ask anyone, are you curious? Everyone says yes. I've never <laughs> heard anyone say no. <laughs> But then I ask them questions like, well, say you gave someone more junior than you a task to do and you knew how to do it. And then they started doing it in a different way. What's your initial reaction? You know, and some people laugh and go, oh, I would tell them they're doing it wrong. That's a way to sort of recognize that what you say you believe versus your behavior are not aligned. Just like when teams tell me, oh, yeah, we want to experiment. We want to try new things. I'm like, great. What's the last experiments or new thing that you've tried in the last week? And people are like, oh, nothing. No, I never do that. Right. So, you know, there's ways to sort of help people become aware. But I think where you get into trouble is where people say that they want to change, but then they just stay the same. And actually, they reject and fight you when you try to help them change. And that's me pouring energy into someone who's not ready to change, or I haven't maybe found a way to work with them to help them change. So we talked quite a lot about why you need to unlearn, but how can you do that? Do you have a specific method? Yeah, so I covered this very deeply in the book, but... These notions of asking those questions to help you diagnose areas where you need to unlearn, that's sort of the first step. And then it's about really identifying those obstacles to helping you get the outcomes that you're aiming for. Often what I do is get leaders then to sort of define unlearning statements for themselves. And an example for me is when I started my business, I was very stressful when you start in a new business. So I knew I wanted to unlearn stress and, and I set a constraint about I'd like to unlearn it in the next three months. And then I get people to sort of list how the outcomes that will demonstrate or the changes in behavior that will demonstrate you have unlearned. So for me, when I asked myself, well, if I had unlearned stress and in two to three years time, what would my life look like? What would I be doing differently? What would my customers, my teams be doing differently? And Things I would say to myself, well, I'd go home feeling accomplished at the end of the day and 
I'd spend 25% of my time actually on personal development tasks. I'd, I might spend more time exercising. And when you start to then quantify these things, you can actually write really powerful unlearning statements that are like, you know, I will unlearn stress before March 31st or three months time. I know I will have when 80% of the time I go home feeling accomplished each week. These are sort of define actually what behaviors will exhibit that I have actually unlearned. And then it's really just about picking one of those behaviors or outcomes as they're described and thinking about what are some of the steps I could take today. And often the easy thing to do is write down the steps I'm already doing, but they're not working. So it's really becoming aware of that and thinking about what are some of the uncomfortable behaviors. When you start to really become aware and intentional about what outcomes you're aiming for and what are some of the behaviors that are hindering you or helping you get there and doubling down on the ones that are helping you and removing the ones that are hindering you. So what do you think that the correct characteristics of those people are who are best at learning and learning and relearning. You already talked about curiosity. What are some of the others? The next one is ownership. And what I mean by that is when you're not getting the results that you're aiming for, do you blame other people? People who are great at unlearning own the results and they think about what they can do differently to affect um, the results, how they need to change. So if your company's not innovating What do you need to do differently to help it innovate? Not blame the company or blame the culture or these sort of things far away from you. And the next one is commitment. And that's really much like recognizing you're going to have to persist with skills, methods that you're not good at, that you're probably going to suck at. And it's deliberately practicing and tackling more and more difficult tasks and to keep extending your skills. And that means getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, as we've sort of talked about, But the way you get there is you create safety. So reduce learning anxiety, make it safe to succeed. Think big, but like start small. So is unlearning something that you do best alone? Don't you need a network of people around you to give you feedback? Where is the right place to start? Getting the scope right is difficult, especially senior leaders often are thinking very big problems. They're thinking, we need to change the culture. We need to change the whole organization. And it's important to be really thinking big. But as you're starting to learn this skill, I would say it's best to, again, start small. Start with yourself. Like think about, well, if we have a culture problem in our company, what's my small part of that culture problem? Is it the way I make decisions? Is it the way I lead my team? Think about one or two new behaviors you can introduce with yourself. As you start to role model and share with people, like I'm trying to unlearn decision-making, What behaviors are frustrating when you work with me about how I make decisions? What behaviors do you think help me make great decisions? You can ask your team to be part of this. You can share your unlearning statements with one another, challenge each other, get feedback from one another. As individuals start to share what they're unlearning, it actually makes their team want to ask questions. Well, as a team, what do we need to unlearn? And then as more people are asking these questions in teams, suddenly you have your whole organizations asking, what do we need to unlearn? It becomes like a snowball effect. You have these big impacts. Every individual changing a little means the system changes a lot. So you talked about creating safety for unlearning. How can companies create an environment that feels safe for people to unlearn old behavior and learn new ones? You already talked about starting small, but are there other things? Well, I think this is where leadership becomes a huge, important part. So when people make mistakes in your company, you know, what's your reaction as a leader? 
if it's to punish people, well, then they'll never try anything again. But if you see mistakes that happen as learning opportunities, that allows people to say, okay, well, we didn't get the desired result. So what have we learned and how can that inform what we'll do next? And, and people will say, yeah, you know, making mistakes, we want our people to make mistakes, but they better not make big mistakes. And yet, again, this is why starting small, reversible doors, these two like decisions that you can back out of if they're too risky. That's why this idea of you create safety by doing lots of smaller things, you can think big and start big, you'll be too big to fail small successes that keep compounding. And this pattern is, is everywhere. You know, you see this in the best organizations in the world. Jeff Bezos always talks about reversible decisions or two-way doors. You can back out of risk when you see it arising, but most organizations don't use those thinking. They're designed that you have to have a big story, a big business case, a big funded idea in order to make progress. And counterintuitively, this idea of thinking big and going big actually makes it harder to innovate. Okay, so I'm going to take a slightly different turn here, but it seems clear that governments all over the world need to unlearn something when it comes to the response to, for instance, COVID-19, I think. There always seems to be this trade-off between, I don't know, health on the one side and economy on the other, or physical health on the one side and maybe mental health on the other side. But what we need is not a trade-off, I think. Don't we need a new system? I think one of the real challenges that we've seen with COVID is, first of all, people aren't aligned on the outcomes. Some people have more of a bias for health. Some people have more bias for economy. But no one's ever really talked about What's bigger? And this happens in companies all the time. People have their own localized measures of success. So maybe politicians this week want to make sure the economy is open and next week they want to make sure people are safe. So they're constantly changing priorities. And that just causes confusion because mm -hmm. nobody really knows what is the measure of success or even how are we measuring the infection rate? So people start to politicize the numbers that work well for their narrative. And when you get stuck in these situations, be it governments or in companies, the thing to do is actually to think bigger, is actually to push up and think about what's a bigger goal that we can all get behind. And then when you do that, it's actually easier. So many companies I work with, you know, they've all these innovation initiatives happening in a company and my project's better than your project and my metrics are better than your metrics. And It's all this localization that just creates competition and it doesn't foster alignment and getting the benefits of all the people involved. When you have confusion or you don't have direction, people just start taking action in an uncoordinated manner. Um, and that's why you have examples like some people will wear masks and some people won't mm -hmm. because they've been told that they're help and then they're told they don't help. It just causes confusion. You know, that's part of the role of leadership and great leadership is providing a unified alignment around an outcome that we can all believe in. So I know that this will be a very hard question, but what could, according to you, be an example of something big that everybody can get behind in times of COVID-19? Well, there's a couple of like these seminal moments in humanity that we really have done things that are probably beyond what we thought possible. Maybe it's one of the reasons that people get very excited about space, as an example. Mm -hmm. When we land people on the moon, it seems like it's impossible. These are like when the best of humanity sort of shows up and we achieve breakthroughs in terms of what we thought was possible. 
That's a sort of quintessential example from the 70s and 80s where we put a person on the moon. Some of the challenges we face today are actually on our planet. Our issues around uh, racial segregation, the treatment of specifically where I live in North America and the US of Black Lives Matter movement, how people are marginalized in society, be it gender, race, ethnicity. These are real challenges we've got to face like on our own planet rather than going further abroad. And that really requires on people recognizing that some people are being marginalized and for us to have a better, more equitable society, some people are going to have to give things up to give other people opportunities. Poverty is another great example of this. Housing. These are all challenges that requires us adapting our behavior. The people maybe who have more changing their behavior to support people who have less. Or maybe there's another solution. But I think these are sort of some of the real challenges we face um, as a race, as humanity, as we sort of go forward. And it's going to require all of us changing a little. So we have this profound system change or global change. And I think that means that some people will have to try things that are uncomfortable for them to get there. But if we're serious about solving these problems, that's going to be the path we have to take. Okay, so I think that this change is a positive note to end our conversation on. So that's it for today. Thank you so much to join us on the NextWorks Innovation Talks, Barry. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. And again, if people are interested to learn more, do check my site out at barryoreilly.com or I'm pretty much on most social media platforms apart from Facebook. So uh, do say <laughs> hello and hopefully we can stay in touch. Okay, thank you so much. Thanks, Lawrence. This was NextWorks Innovation Talks. Thank you so much for joining us. And follow us on nextworks.com if you're hungry for more innovation news and events. <laughs>